Welcome back to It's Not Academic, the podcast, education conversations from HECO. I'm Rosanna Tamburi, research editor. Last month, HECO invited experts from across Canada and the world to take part in a two-day workshop examining a big question. How do you assess quality in higher education? One of the participants was Hamish Coates, professor of higher education at the University of Melbourne. After the workshop, Hamish Coates and HECO president and CEO Harvey Weingarten sat down to discuss what's been happening in Australia's higher education system and what lessons this holds for Ontario. Here's what they had to say. So we just held a a day and a half meeting uh, with one of the participants was Hamish Coates and a number of colleagues from around the world talking about measuring the quality of the academic and student experience. Uh, Hamish, you're from Australia. What's the dynamic there? Is quality a big issue? And if so, who's driving the interest? Mm. So, I mean, there's two things that you can immediately say about Australia, and one that is, certainly is Australia, and the other one is that it's so much composed from different parts of the world. Of course, legacy, European, North American sort of interests, but increasingly, and most particularly, interests from, from, from Eastern Asia... So um, they're the two different sort of, if you like, schizophrenic characteristics that drive so many aspects of how we go about doing higher education in Australia. Uh, And in a way they're different, but increasingly they come together. So um, the way we've done international higher education, international research engagements, um, has been somewhat different to the way we set national priorities in education and research. But over time, as as the idea of a system itself becomes more porous, uh, the two align. And so what that's driven, uh, Harvey, is it's really driven an interest in demonstrating to people as we move very steadfastly into having a universal scale of provision um, that it's worth their time to take part and use higher education to help them succeed in the lives they want. And not just in terms of getting income or particular jobs, but in terms of having all sorts of broader life and health outcomes. And Australia's been quite progressive in thinking through different sorts of uh, ways we can understand, measure, report and improve quality of higher education. And one of the most progressive things that Australia did, I guess, was 2010 actually closed down the agency that was associated with assuring quality and shifted to a much more standards-based approach to regulation. And what that has done is it's shifted government attention almost entirely away from continuous improvement to regulation against the national set of standards. Uh, and Is that a positive? It's, it's, it's been a positive in as much as the process to get from 2010 to 2017, which has seen that agency being designed and redesigned several times and going from having hundreds of staff down to several dozen or a dozen or so, uh, has has brought a lot of issues that were once considered private out into the public space. So conversations about academic autonomy and academic standards and the privileges that academics have over teaching, designing curriculum and assessing students are now very much part of the public discourse, whereas once they were secret academic business held in filing cabinets. Where it's had a a slightly interesting uh, impact on the quality discourse uh, and the quality practice in the country is really around uh, the idea that um, that agency more or less will only make determinations uh, based on things it is willing and able to litigate on. 
because if it makes an adverse finding against a provider, next step the federal court. Uh, and that's all done in large amounts of commercial uh, confidence. And so the discussions that used to happen between government, provider, quality agency and all sorts of other stakeholders, including at national conferences, now largely happen in, in the private sort of uh, private regulatory space. Uh, it's also meant that uh, anything to do with quality per se has largely become a commercial uh, prerogative of the institutions. So if I want to offer a program to either domestic Australian students or targeted to international students, I would need approval of the government. So you'd need approval from, uh, well, and there was various different schemes, but those have now largely been centralised, so you'd need to get uh, approval uh, under the CRICOS Act to offer education services to overseas students and various other professional mm-hmm. approvals or, or field-specific approvals, you would need to also be an approved higher education provider registered by this organisation. And, of course, there's a different agency that looks after the vocational sector, uh, which in Australia is quite formalised and broad. So um, how then you framed your unique contribution to helping people learn uh, uh, and helping ensure that each and every student succeeds... Uh, would be entirely your prerogative, and the, the government has basically said we're out of that game. That's a commercial marketplace, mm. uh, and uh, we'll have some brownie points for people who do very well, and we'll we'll make sure that no one falls below whatever the cutoff score is at the. And basement. when you say you have to be an accredited higher education institution, you could be a private. Is that yeah, correct? And there's a, of course a growing number of privates. They, not one type of private. There's large international for-profit providers, there's churches that have reformed mm-hmm. that offer certain sorts of community service, very high level hotel and business training schools um, school that does JDs mm-hmm. they do about 10% give or take of education provision in tertiary education in Australia um, uh, you could easily see that grow uh, in years to come and in some cases uh, they're recognised as being right at the top of the field um, but it's a a system in which, uh, much like the US, the 40 universities as opposed to the 150 privates do about 80% of provision or 90% of provision. And can you give me a sense of what percentage, let's say, of the undergraduates at the Australian universities, the big ones we would know about, would be international students? We've got about 20, it varies by institution, we've got about 20 to 30% uh, of our higher education population is international. Of that, the, the vast majority would come from mainland China. They pay fees, international fees that are different than what an Australian would pay? Right. International student fees are completely market-driven. So um, they are available. Uh, there are some websites that aggregate them. Um, it can be hard to find them on the institution's website. There will be all sorts of negotiated arrangements that will happen with various agents and advisors in specific supplier countries um, and uh, that's uh, that's an area where institutions um, can make a lot of profit out of what they're uh, what they're giving to the student uh, for the Australian domestic student uh, it's quite regulated uh, just in the last week the Australian government has announced that it will reduce its subsidy uh, to the core operating grant and and uh, and more or less allow institutions to replace that with extra fees from students. Uh, that's still got to go through a bit of a, ne- a political negotiation. And then, of course, sector implementation. Um, 
but uh, uh, there's still much lower fees on, in, on balance than the international students. And, and when, uh, when a, uh, an Australian university <coughs> goes to mainland China to recruit students, mm. what's, what's the pitch? And to what extent is the quality of the institution or the quality of the degree they would get, the reputation of the university, to what extent is that an important part of the pitch? Well, the, sh- the short answer is we don't have a lot of, if I can say it in the broadest sense, scientific insight on on how that works and how it's evolved. Uh, the industry has flourished in, I'd have to use the word, a sort of cowboy fashion of just going out and forging these relationships and making it work, and it's been highly successful. Uh, it hasn't been highly reflective. But in a nutshell, it appears to be that there's a series of advisors dotted around supplier countries... Uh, in some of the more, uh, uh, in some of the bigger suppliers, institutions will have their own offices. So most of our large institutions would have offices where they, even if they didn't have education provision, they would at least have staff that did marketing and engagement sort of activities mm-hmm. with governments and with prospective students and with agents in those countries. Of course, Australian institutions have a lot of branch campuses around the world too. So these act to get students who might do a year or two at those campuses, if not a full degree, and then and then come to Australia. And the pitch basically has always been very simple. It's, it's brand Australia. So the interest in protecting uh, the idea that it doesn't really matter where you study in Australia, uh, they're all good institutions, has been absolutely of uh, fund, uh, basic importance. In and around that, when we study student, uh, student uh, pathways and behaviours uh, in respect to particular institutions, you can see it's the big research universities that attract uh, the most able and uh, the, the um, students who, who are most interested in studying in Australia and then increasingly we've seen uh, uh, students from an international origin fill up uh, about, and again it varies, but about 10 to 20 percent at any one institution. And, and do the universities collaborate on these recruiting efforts or they're in competition with one another? Uh, it would vary. So in some instances there's collaboration uh, there used to be a university uh, company owned by all the universities that, if you like, bulk bought or bulk, bulk sold education services. Uh, that's now been privatised and floated and it's do, doing incredibly well. Um, and, you know, how those suggestions are made to prospective students is, is a little bit unclear, but clearly there's a range of criteria based on states and price points and fields of interest. And does a does a discussion ever erupt in Australia, where uh, Australians might complain or be concerned about the fact that there's so so many international students are coming to Australia, it is taking spaces away from domestic students. So that was a pretty prominent uh, discourse, if I can put it in broader sense, about fifteen twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Australia's very early. Uh, at the front of the pack uh, in terms of international education in this sort of area. Um, What's happened is the overall system has enlarged quite considerably. So 20 years ago there was about two or 300,000 international students, um, uh, students overall in the system, and there are now that many international students, but we have about 1.2 million students overall. So the students uh, have, the international students have not displaced uh, the domestic students. It's more to... Uh, the point that the revenue from those students has enabled a lot of institutions to grow and, and provide international stu- uh, in, in education to domestic students. 
I suppose there's regulation in certain critical areas uh, with respect to medical education and, and certain fields like that. But um, those sorts of those sorts of um, public debates uh, we don't have anymore. What we what we're starting to have is consideration around uh, what happens to students when they come and study in Australia. Do they stay in Australia? Why do they come here? Do they seek to value add that with work? Do they bring their families? Uh, do they seek to go back to their home country or to a, a, a third a third country uh, for employment? And it's trying to get a sense of where Australia fits in the broader global pipeline of talent development that we're starting to have a, a broader interest, which takes us back to the area of quality. What what are we rendering to the people who uh, decide to come and spend two or three years in Australia? So, so one of the, uh, I found, intriguing aspects of your presentation in this workshop on measuring academic quality, what it was, in my view, was quite different from uh, the presentations from other groups. I'm, uh, you can criticize me for not accurately capturing or distilling your argument, yep. but I heard your argument to be, look, <coughs> we can talk about quality, it's a tough term to use. We should be talking about value. And the students are asking, what is the value of me going to an institution, getting a degree, paying all this money? I presume the same thing would be true as what is the value of international recruitment? Mm-hmm. So, and, and you made the argument, I think, that when a student asks that question, it's a very personal question. It's about them. Look, here's who I am. Here's my interests. Here's my aspirations. Uh, I can go to any one of a number of places. What am I going to get out of this? which I have to say was quite different from most of the other presentations mm. uh, we heard on quality. So I'm curious whether that perspective is, that's you, it's your perspective, mm. it's coming from that's the orientation of the institution you're at or the view of the country now about this is how we should be talking about the issue of quality. Mm. I mean, as higher education has moved in ways that have required policy infrastructure and and political, greater political attention. We've, and this is really you know, since the 80s, I guess, we've really developed our own lexicon and ways of thinking about going and doing business. Um, and, you know, we've set up our own conferences and dialogues and journals about quality assurance and regulation and the like. And in many respects, the way that higher education has gone about that, and often for good reason, because uh, of the, um, uh, the nature of the business, uh, have been quite different to almost any other area of, of, of society or institutional operation. And as higher education becomes now front and centre of the economy, we really see greater attention being given to, um, greater attention being given to uh, the, the contribution that it makes, not just to individuals, but to their families and communities and employers. And I would have to say that uh, it's a personal view, but um, it's got to be... Um, inflected by the experience in Australia where we've had a very commercial approach to providing education to people all around the world and persuading them uh, very successfully uh, over a period of some decades now that if they come and study with us, uh, they'll, have a, they'll have a better life. Um, Do so they stay? We, we large numbers of students stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, they're increasing... So when you look at the education provision of higher education services. It's increasingly hard to decouple that from immigration decisions, familial employment decisions, 
uh, where people want to live with their spouse, where they want to have children uh, and the like. And, of course, Australia benefits because we're in the world's biggest higher education time zone. So you can hop on a plane from Melbourne, which looks very far away at the other side of the world, uh, from North America, and um, you're in touching half of the human uh, human race in about, in about uh, six or seven hours' flight. So how we can differentiate our services into the future, I think, is going to be much more complex. Because we simply don't, and I guess going to the other presentations uh, that we were privileged to hear over the last couple of days here at ECHO, we, we don't have a lot of the information that readily, readily available that we need to communicate the value that we... Um, to communicate the value that we add to people and their communities and in ways that are nuanced by whether someone's from India or mm. Sri Lanka or Vietnam. Uh, interestingly, one of our, our, our leading vice-chancellors um, has just got an article in the paper this morning saying we've had cuts of 5% plus or minus on Monday. Uh, and, of course, the commentariat in higher education went ballistic on Tuesday and Wednesday saying this is atrocious. And it may well be. But she's come out today on Friday and said, well, we've got an image problem. We haven't been conveying our value to the politicians domestically. Surely we have been conveying our value to the peoples in other countries because they flock to Australia to study. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, yeah, it's a personal view, but it's also my reading of the tea leaves of where we're going with all this. And globally, there are some countries that are investing vast amounts of money and doing great work in terms of developing the insights and the evidence we'll need of the future. Your work here is one example. Uh, the German Federal Ministry has put tens of millions of euros into thinking forward in terms of new ways of understanding higher education. We see the UK doing innovative work in that area as well. Is what there... we don't have, I'll just... Mm-hmm. You mentioned the presentation of, uh, of Roger Benjamin, and I guess Roger's point was, even despite all of the work that I could you know, document in the field of learning outcomes or understanding students' aspirations in terms of their success and graduate outcome... It's minuscule compared with the amount of R&D that goes on in fields like health or, mm-hmm. or, other, or other areas. Mm. Is there an elevator pitch? Is there a, if a student caught you in an elevator and said, look, I'm thinking of either a domestic student or an international student, and yep. said, look, I, have, I can spend the next four years going to university, paying you all the tuition money, or I could, you know, the Canadian stereotype of the Australian, they're on the beach drinking a Foster's. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the pitch for them to pick going to university? Well, we, we don't have the elevator pitch, okay. would be what I'd say at this stage. And um, we ha- have been maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit arrogant in thinking that, uh, uh, you know, our product smells good and, and uh, people are going to buy it. And... Uh, uh, we see in countries where there's been uh, huge hikes in prices that people start to make different decisions. Um, there's still enormous amounts of value vested in the ideal idea of a bachelor degree, but um, that's declined now, and we see the master's degree becoming a new baseline currency, and even the PhD might soon be a, a mass qualification. Uh, so coming up with a succinct way of saying, if you buy higher education services... And I just mean with the financial investment, it's time, it's mm-hmm. all the other things you could do with your life. You're going to be better off. You're going to have a healthier life. And we can start to see some institutions and systems think not just about quality, but not just about success, but about health. 
and how higher education plays a role in creating healthier people and communities. And I think that's where uh, we need to really, as you say, uh, we bottle it down into a, a some one or two succinct ways of suggesting that this could be a good thing for you to do. Now, it may not be a good thing. And in some respects now, the default catchphrase of anyone going to school is, what are you going to do after I'm going to uni? Uh, we need to advance that elevator pitch in a way that helps people make a decision not to go if their life's going to be better on a beach uh, mm-hmm. drinking. And I say anything other than Foster's, but that may be a personal <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> So is this an exercise in data collection? What, and if so, where are we falling down? We're not collecting data on the fate of our university graduates, the success of students who don't go on to university and college. What should we be measuring to inform that elevator speech? Yeah, we've, we've done a lot of work collecting enormous amounts of data and higher education in almost every country over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and some of those systems have been set up for enormous amounts of time, some are relatively new. Um, unfortunately, data collections can often put shackles around the conversation, or at least the imagination of what should be, what should be planned into the future. So I would suggest there's enough data for now. Uh, what we need to do is think, are we collecting... Or at least we're talking about the right things mm-hmm. and then backward mapping onto the data collections and some things we shouldn't be collecting anymore some things that we've always measured for 20 or 30 years have absolutely no impact it would appear in terms of how people experience or succeed in higher education like? Uh, well I've never seen whether you're a male or a female explain anything in terms of educational experience mm-hmm. and yet we ask it in every student survey and there's a cost to asking that and yet, at the same time, we're not investing that cost. Imagine every survey in every university, you know, every country around the world, that's, that's starting to add up. We're not investing that money in, in measuring the outcomes and the impact of the education services we deliver. Uh, where people get jobs, how they move through their careers, whether or not you should do more higher education later in your life, um, whether it's best all done early in your life. We just heard today about the Swedish case where it's a more distributed fashion across the lifetime. So we need to start thinking about what counts and then start to plan, have we got the data, and if not, maybe we need to do some more data collections. A lot of time people will say data collections, they're expensive, we don't want to do that, but then you look at the opportunity cost of not measuring the right things and that's markedly high. So um, matter of um, matter of developing some new data sets in areas that are actually going to help create new uh, insights into into how the elevator pitch is going to be best conveyed. One of the things a student would hear today <coughs> is that they're going to have five or six different careers in their life. Uh, some of the jobs that will be available to them 15 years from now, we haven't even contemplated the existence of a job like right. that. Um, all of this puts a, a, a shines a light on the concept of lifelong learning that mm. you know it's not just when you're 18 to 24 year old you're going to go out but you know reskilling I believe is the word or learning new things changing careers this is for the rest of your life I think Tom Friedman says if you stop learning you're not going to succeed do you see in Australia that this emphasis on higher education includes emphasis on that 
on, on, on not necessarily the 18 to 20, the person who will graduate by the time they're 24 years old. But we need a system that's going to continually educate the people of Australia for their entire working, for their entire life. And part of that is knowing when we should be as people doing and creating higher education for ourselves and with our teachers and with our fellow students and and when we shouldn't be doing it. Um, And there's an interesting new development that I think is going to have a substantial impact on the whole assessment movement and it's taking place in a very different area of the world but it's a massive area of the world and that is the blockchain movement. Uh, And the idea more or less is that, you know, from some early point in your life you have... uh, a, a chain and you connect in the pieces of knowledge that you have and they decay over a period of time. I can't remember the Japanese I learned when I was 10 all that well. Um, but you could refresh them and you might be able to then design the knowledge that you have and the knowledge that you need. And indeed do that with employers and advisors and spouses and, and children and the like. And, and when you do that, you could then go and source learning experiences to make you a healthier person, if I can put it that way. Um, we currently lack the um, apparatus to do that in formal educational environments where we basically sell um, widgets that are called degrees. Uh, and in many cases, but more in the vocational sector, we have decoupled these to, um, to offer more uh, flexible ways of engaging with further learning. Uh, I think higher education's got a lot more to go on that track. We're still basically selling uh, batched-up products that take two or three years to go um, in, the, in, the, in the legacy aspects of our system. In the emerging, more innovative, private often aspects of the system, or often not fully private, but private subsidiaries of, of public institutions, we see much more rapid-fire forms of coursework development that are reactive mm. to market. Indeed, chain, training in what is a blockchain is now rapidly taking shape as people see this as a prospective area for parceling up all the assessment experiences and, and knowledge modules, uh, if you like, that people acquire over their lives. Yeah. Mm. And do you see a lot of this innovate, innovative thinking going on and, and where to take account that students are different, the demands are different, all, all of them, and Exactly the argument you made that we, we you know we give someone a batch product at the end of a very defined thing and the world's different now. Is there a lot of thinking about how to transform curricula, transform programs, transform how we deliver all of this content? Or I would I would think in the last year I've spoken in varying various countries and not, not least in Australia with about twenty or thirty university presidents or. Or provosts, and every single one of them is thinking forward in that regard. Hmm. Um, they're all thinking how not just uh, is knowledge going to require re-knowledging, if that's a word, and retraining and re-experiencing into the future, as you suggested, uh, as people move in and out of different careers and jobs and roles, but how is my institution going to map into that more complex and dynamic future? And there's one thing for sure, is doing it the same way we were doing it in 1950 isn't going to work. Um, that said, uh, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So the general way of thinking seems to be to have a, uh, an established core set of basic provision in the liberal arts, in the professions and the like, and then to have some more innovative ways that uh, perhaps students can engage with to augment that, uh, that basic thinking. And we also see this happening in doctoral training as well. You know, we saw the core technical work, but increasingly that core technical work 
doesn't give you what you need to, to do your job, either be an educator, a leader, or a researcher. So we see supplementary training in those sorts of areas. So last question. It might be an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It, it's always good to get from an outsider an assessment of how you're doing. So uh, you're in Australia. You see education <coughs> systems and educate, you know, higher education institutions in a lot of countries. How would you assess how the Canadian higher education system is, how it's perceived around the world, and what where it may have room to improve or what it's doing particularly well? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the big difference between Australia and Canada is the, the provincial nature of your higher education system. So, um, uh, um, you know, whether you're selling brand Canada or brand Ontario, um, you know, is juxtaposed against us selling brand Australia, which is meant to be one single flat system full of 40, uh, 41 comprehensive research universities. So um, uh, Canada, I would say, is less commercialised than Australia, from my impression. Uh, and that is a, you know, there's pros and cons to that. Uh, one of the real opportunities, I guess, will be to use the insights of the systems that have reformed in terms of their management and the way they've gone about structuring and governing higher education um, to drive innovation in Canada to make sure that it's done in a productive way and generating high-quality outcomes. But, uh, you know, there also is the opportunity to stand back and say, well, we've seen a country try to do performance-based management of this, that or the other, and it simply has tied up a lot of public funds and created a lot of nasty conversations and, and not generated a whole lot of new health for the people or the communities. So um, I guess it's spotlighting those areas where Canada has the opportunity to learn from other countries but also um, uh, you know, reject uh, things that haven't worked from other countries that are, that are real opportunities going forward. Clearly on the international space... Um, which has been a huge uh, saviour for the Australian higher education system. Um, and it's, it's, of course, moving now beyond just the procurement of revenues. It's, it's, it's becoming a lot more globalised in terms of faculty transfers and research engagements and the like. A uh, really interesting new exper- experiment called, it's a bit more than an experiment, called Australia Education City, um, funded by Chinese involving Australian higher education. It's just about to start up in, in Melbourne. Um, so, you know, where are those adventures in higher education happening in Canada uh, in the same way that they're happening, not just in Australia, of course, but mm-hmm. other, other parts of the world as well? Uh, what are the opportunities to innovate uh, and in teaching and learning in terms of ensuring that higher education is relevant to the community? Uh, and what are the things that uh, Canada can go back to the rest of the world and say, well, we've, we've given that some consideration, but we think we're not going to waste our time? Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud.